Hey, what's up, everyone? I'm Jesse McCann, and welcome to another episode of the Tactical Guitarist Podcast, the show that brings you interviews with guitarists, composers, teachers, and anyone else who can share their wisdom, advice, and stories on surviving a career in music. I've got a great interview to present here today with uh, musician and author Simon Tam. We talk about his book, Music Business Hacks, which is something I recommend any musician check out. Uh, I'm just coming off a spring break, and I can tell you that I'm not quite ready to dive back into the work week, but that's life, right? Uh, I could use maybe another full day of sleep, but uh, it doesn't seem like that's going to happen anytime soon. I did manage to get some things accomplished over the break. Uh, For any of you aspiring guitar teachers out there, I released a book on teaching guitar called Classical Guitar Pedagogy, A Manual for Instruction of the Classical Guitar. It's uh, available only through Kindle format right now, but that will change as time goes on. So if you're interested in getting my approach uh, or my angle on teaching right now, then definitely pick up a copy there. You can find a link to it, uh, and uh, as well as Simon Tam's book, in my recommendations section of the website. So that's the big news for now. Uh, Let's get on with our interview. I'm really excited to present today's guest, Simon Tam. Tam is an author, musician, activist, and troublemaker. So I like him already. Uh, Tam is best known as the founder and bassist of The Slants, the world's first and only all-Asian-American dance rock band. He has been a keynote speaker, performer, and presenter at TEDx, South by Southwest, Comic-Con, the Department of Defense, Stanford University, and over 1,200 events across four continents. He has set a world record by appearing on the TEDx stage 13 times. His work has been highlighted in over 3,000 media features across 150 countries, including The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, NPR, BBC, New York Times, and Rolling Stone. He was named a champion of diverse issues by the White House and worked with President Barack Obama's campaign to fight bullying. He recently helped expand freedom of speech through winning a unanimous victory at the Supreme Court of the United States for a landmark case, Mattal v. Tam. Tam also designed one of the first college-accredited social media and digital marketing certificates in the United States. His approach to cultural competency in marketing has been taught to hundreds of Fortune 500 companies. He has received many accolades for his work, including the Mark T. Banner Award from the American Bar Association, the Hugh Hefner First Amendment Award, Milestone Case of the Year from uh, Managing IP Magazine, and Distinguished Alum Award from Merrillhurst University. In addition to that, he was named Citizen of the Year by the Chinese American Citizens Alliance, a Freedom Fighter by the Roosevelt Freedom Fighters, and a Portland Rising Star from the Light of Fire Awards. In 2018, he founded the Slants Foundation, an organization dedicated to providing scholarships and mentorships to artists combining activism and community engagement into their work. We chatted via Skype about one of his books titled Music Business Hacks. Uh, It's like a recipe book for music business success. Every section is broken down into short bits with specific actions that you can take to begin taking control of your music career right away. Crammed with over 2,000 tips and idea generators, the book really lets you hack your way through the music business. It also features advice from A&R reps, label owners, publicists, attorneys, artists, and much more. Simon's a very busy guy, but he was gracious with his time, even though he's on the road pretty much full-time right now. I think you're going to get a lot out of what he had to say. And after listening, you should check out his book and his podcast. Just a really cool person to chat with. So now I bring you Simon Tam. Simon Tam, thank you for being on the show. 
Um, well, thank I'd you like, so much for having me. Yeah, I'd I'd uh, I'd like to start with a little bit of your background because this show is related mostly f- to guitarists. Um, and you know, being that I run the guitar program at Portland State University, um, I deal exclusively with classical guitarists. But I know that a lot of people who are listening to the show lately are from all different backgrounds of guitar. So they play in bands or or whatever. Um, and so I just kind of want to get uh, maybe a little of your background because I know some people will know who you are and some people won't. So um, could you just give me give us a, a brief history of Simon Tam? <laughs> Sure. So I started getting involved in the music industry at a pretty young age. I mean, I started taking music lessons at the age of six and then really kind of picked up a bass guitar age 10. And within a few years, I realized that, uh, one, I had to pick up more skills than just learning how to read and play music on the bass guitar. I also needed to figure out how the industry worked. So within a few years, in my early teenage years, I actually started a record label um, Hmm. called SPG Records and started putting out albums for artists around the country. And because I did most of my work by phone, and this is back in the day when people only had AOL as internet service, through, through like America Online chat rooms, boards, and emails, Nobody suspected that I was just a kid in high school. And so um, we made deals that way. And I put out (laughs) records and I started booking shows and kind of played the part as a promoter as well. So I started booking tours for bands from uh, Tooth & Nail Records, Kill Rock Stars, Lookout Records, a lot of the kind of um, mid-tier independent record labels of the kind of mid-90s to early 2000s. And... Really, that's kind of how I got my feet wet in terms of understanding the industry for both an artist perspective as well as those on the label promotion kind of end of things. And, you know, meanwhile, I'm still kind of writing and kind of playing music on my own. But people are always asking me, like, well, how do you book a tour? How do you do this and that? And so that's how I just kind of started getting involved with doing artist consultation work okay. um, about 12 or 15 years ago, I started a blog called Last Stop Booking, and that's when I started booking tours professionally for a number of artists, and, and I was just kind of providing like lots of free articles on whatever I had on my mind. Like, it started out with um, how to how to get sponsored, how to get like how to be an endorsed artist, yeah. but also had just kind of any area of the industry that I would see. And I wrote about four or 500 articles on there, which got picked up from uh, ASCAP, Billboard, Music Think Tank, and places like that. And then eventually I put out a book called Music Business Hacks, and now I host a daily podcast show with that same name. So nice. I still play music. I play bass in a band called The Slants, and uh, you know that's kind of my what I call my nights and weekends job. Um, yeah. And then, and then when I'm not doing that, I'm running a nonprofit playing playing music writing speaking all that other fun stuff that i do yeah and you're on the road kind of right now is this is it mostly speaking engagements that you're doing right now or are you kind of mixing in between playing in your band and everything too it's really a mix of both so mm-hmm. nowadays uh, i i'll travel and i'll speak but i'll fold music into the presentation so uh, i i just got back from texas i was there for about a week for south by southwest oh yeah yeah and it was really funny because, um, you know, I was speaking at the convention center as part of the, the conference side of things. 
and I had my band with me and they were kind of surprised. They were like, they weren't expecting that. And I was like, well, I just want to fold in live music because I'll, I'll tell a story, I'll make a point, and then I want them to play a bit of a song. And anyway, it's all acoustic, very easy, basic setup. But they're just like, we've never had live music here. I'm like, it's a music conference, and you've never had music. Like, that's yeah. weird. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so it was fun because instead of playing overhead music, like, you know, the elevator tunes or light jazz or whatever <laughs> they had playing uh, through the soundboard, while while people were being seated for the 20 minutes or so before I got up and spoke, my band played. You guys and just played. So, that's that's so cool. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so it was really fun. And then, you know, then I transitioned, started speaking and, and folded the music into the talk. And so I've been doing a lot more of that lately, that if I get booked as a speaker, I'm like, hey, I I love to speak about music, even if I'm talking about issues like you know, racism, diversity, inclusion. I talk about art. It's yeah. such a big part of my life that I want that to be uh, a part of that presentation. And so most of the time, it's just me and I'll, I'll bring my guitarist down the road. And so I'll talk about whatever book I'm, I'm presenting or whatever topic it is. And then we'll just play some music and, you know, then I'll do a signing or whatever. So nice. it's it's really fun. And uh, it, it allows me to continue to provide like a living wage to to the musicians I work with, yeah. and 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 even though if I'm you know if I, if I'm doing like 150 speaking gigs this year, I could still have my band with me. Nice, nice. And you've written uh, so you've written music business hacks. You've actually written a couple other books since then too, right? Like there's a I think there's one on getting sponsored, and then you recently released. Is it a kind of a memoir of sorts? Yeah, my memoir comes out on April 30th, oh, okay. and it's called Slanted, How an Asian-American Troublemaker Took on the Supreme Court. It's about you know, starting my band, which was oftentimes known as the, the first and only all-Asian-American band, and also our personal journey of intellectual property rights, which turned into a fight for freedom of speech uh, that went all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court. Yeah, I remember that. I, I, it was a big, big story for a while. And uh, you guys came out on top, right? Yeah, we won uh, unanimously. So it became this landmark case. In fact, a lot of people think it might be the last uh, free speech case that's won unanimously at the Supreme Court for a little while because the court's getting a little little contentious about issues these days. Yeah, yeah, you could say that. Uh, well, cool, man. I wanted to. Um, I actually wanted to talk about the business business. Ha- excuse me, music business hacks book because um, so much of it is uh, is so valuable to uh, I think our listeners in general. And um, I'm kind of wondering first, uh, what what brought on the idea to bring to to write that book? Was, was it simply out of all of the the articles you were writing, or did you have a more uh, a deeper reason because of the the types of musicians you were working with? Well, it, it, a little bit of both. So at the time that I was writing the book, I was actually in grad school. I was in a full-time MBA program. Ah, okay. I, I was working full-time for college. I had a couple part-time jobs on the side to pay for, you know, said MBA program. And I was also touring as a, as a musician and speaker. 
So I was doing all this stuff all at the same time, which, you know, if you've ever, like full-time grad school is no joke. It takes up a lot of time, plus all the other gigs and and side hustles that I had going on. And so people would always ask me, like, how do you find time for all of that? Like, how do you have, how do you have time to work on your career? Right. And at first I would just say, oh, it's because I don't have Netflix and I don't have kids, which (laughs) takes up a lot of people's time. But then... I started thinking more about how I organized my career because people would, you know, ask me for advice, usually from from the blog or something like that. And I would I would tell it to them. And then they'd always say, like, I don't have time. I don't have time to work on my music career. Yeah. And so I started challenging them. I was like, could you find 15 minutes a day? Could you wake up 15 minutes earlier or even 30 minutes earlier? And people would say, Well, I, I guess I could do that. And not realizing that, that if you could dedicate 15 minutes a day that's 91 hours a year like that's a pretty good chunk of time that's more hours than most people get in paid vacation time every year so like if you had 91 hours could you actually do something pretty significant for your music career and most people would say like yeah if i knew if i knew what to do and so that kind of inspired me to write uh, a music business book that operated almost like a recipe book like if you could carve out a 15 minute or 30 minute or even 60 minute chunk every single day and you just wanted some direction you could pick up this book randomly flip to any chapter and then read about the task and then do a specific activity and know that it would help advance your career or your skills in some kind of way and so i wanted to make it very easy to do because you know most music business books you read them cover to cover like any other book and then you're lost you just yeah. read like two maybe 400 pages of stuff. And you're like, I don't know what to work on now. <laughs> like, you, <laughs> right. know, you might get inspired. Maybe you'll get one or two ideas out of it, but certainly not like a day-to-day practice. Yeah. And so right. I, I wanted to really kind of flip how we think about ideas on their head and say, like, if you just change it around and think very specific about like what it is that you do, you'll realize that there's a lot more that can be done. I mean, it's like, it's like going to the gym, right? Like, just because you go to the gym for ten hours in one day doesn't mean you're going to be in great shape. Right. In fact, you'll probably be like burnt out and sore. Yeah. But if you work out a little bit every single day for the next year, I mean, at the end of the year, you're going to be in a lot better shape than if you didn't do anything at all. Exactly. Yeah, and I I love the the concept because um it it gets it gets people just working, you know, and it's not asking for a lot, you know, if, if you're if 15 minutes, isn't that much time. It goes by so fast, especially if we're, you know, staring at our phones or computers or something. Um, do you find that it's, it's, it's this kind of like, you know, this discipline of doing it every day that, um, that maybe musicians lack or what, or what do you think? Um, why do you think musicians have such a hard time figuring out how to get successful or be more of a career musician? Well, I think it's in part the the discipline issue because it's a lot easier to form bad habits than good habits. Like yeah. if you get into the routine of eating a bowl of ice cream every night, that's a lot easier to get away with than forming a routine where you stop at the gym for a half hour every day before you go home. Right. Like, you know, one one of them feels better or like, oh, I, people who binge shows or who just wake up and the first thing they do is check their check their phone like these are all bad habits we know that they're bad but it's easy to get into them Uh, so i think part of it is that kind of mindset just thinking 
like how do I create new like positive habits? But the other part I think is that musicians oftentimes lack vision for themselves. They don't really have a goal. Um, like if you talk to a lot of musicians, they'll just say, well, I want to play music full time or I want to have a great record or something like that. And like, what does that mean to you? Like, what is a full-time musician look like? How much money are you making? How often are you gigging? Are you out of town? Are you licensing? Like, you have to start thinking about where it is that you want to be operating in. Because if all you're thinking is like, I just want to be a full-time musician, well, anyone can do that. You could be the hired gun in like numerous bar bands around town and make a very, like, probably not the great greatest living or you can work for an orchestra or you can be a full-time vocal teacher like that's technically those are all full-time jobs in the music industry but yeah. unless you have a specific vision attached of like what it is you want to accomplish you're not going to really get there like right. uh, zig ziglar used to say if you if you aim at nothing you'll hit it every time yeah, but yeah. if you have you know if you have that specific vision say like okay my goal is to sell you know, 10,000 records a year. I want to play 50 shows uh, a year uh, in town and 100 shows out of town. And I want streaming and licensing to, you know, comprise 30% of my income. And I'm going to do it by getting placements in TV and film. Well, now you have very specific targets to work towards. And you can actually measure those things and say, hey, is what I'm doing actually getting me closer to the goal? Or am I just spinning my wheels, wasting my time? Like, getting active on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook, is that actually helping me get all these goals? Probably not. Right. Not unless you're being very strategic about how you use your time in terms of social media or email or anything else. Right. Yeah. You've, you have a, a section in the book on this. Actually, I think what is what you're referring to is your smarter goals that you've mentioned and, or that you've written about. Um, and it's interesting because I've talked about smart goals in an earlier episode, um, dealing with like practice routines and things like that. And you know, that the, the acronym really applies to anything uh, that you're trying to set out to do and accomplish, but you've also added, um, you've added the ER at the end of that, the smarter. Yes. So I was wondering if you could just elaborate a little bit more on, on those, uh, the, you know, your, your kind of approach to the smart and the smarter goals. Sure. So with, with smart goals, like most people know them as they're specific, they're measurable, they're attainable, uh, they're relevant, and they're time-bound. But I like to add this ER. Like, number one, it should involve everyone around you. So that, that's the E. Like, if you're going to have music business goals or goals for yourself as a career, you, that those goals need to involve everyone on your team, your band, yeah. your management, publicist, and so on. But it should also involve your family, like your significant other, because if your goals be on the road all the time and touring nonstop, but you're, but you have a family and they're, they're not cool with it. Well, that's going to create some issues. Yeah. So you have to make sure the people who are most invested in you uh, are on board with your goals and that way they can help support your vision. And then the R or the second R is revisited because I believe goals should be revisited often. It's not just like a annual plan at work, like, oh, we have a sales target, and then you never look at it. You should be looking at your goals. You know, I do it at least once a week. I think about the thing I'm trying to accomplish this year and think, did I do something this week to, to make progress towards that goal? Like, what have I done? And if I haven't done anything, it's, well, I know that it's motivation for me to actually work towards those goals that I consider very important. Because oftentimes, like, 
how important is it to you? Is it important enough to like revisit? Is it important enough to you to uh, spend that 15 minutes a day? You know, like we can say that it's our dream all we want, but unless we work towards it, it's nothing but a dream. Yeah. Once it's a tangible goal, then we should actually be measuring that progress and thinking, is the stuff I'm doing actually working? Is it effective? Can I do it better? You also have a great section. I mean, the whole book is fantastic. I've, I've, I've been reading it. I'm pretty much near the end. And, you know, there's there are sections that are I, I love how accessible it is, like you said, where you can just you, you can jump to any section and. And dive in and you know take on one of those tasks. You know when it comes to like marketing, um, there's I love what you were talking about in the book. And though the book was published, I think like just like four years ago or something. Um, yeah, it's been a minute. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's like you know technology moves so fast. Um, some of the things you you mention in there um, like have come to fruition and even gone beyond like uh, you know like. Uh, Instagram TV, I don't think was around when you wrote the book, but um, since then, like, you know, everybody's got their own channel on Instagram now and is, you know, is taking advantage of that. Um, yeah. And then you mentioned other things about marketing that I've, uh, I've noticed um, are kind of, um, you know, similar to what other people talk about in terms of like influencers and, um, you know, a number, how, how many times you're posting and, and on what kinds of uh, social media you're posting on. Could you talk a little bit more about um, what you recommend in those in those areas? Like, let's talk about, for instance, you know, posts, for example. So, this this idea of having to like work in a way where you're you're actively, you know, providing content online so that you're kind of staying in front of people. Um, that that didn't really sink in in my mind in, uh, until like the last year or so. Where I was like, oh man, I really you know got to start doing more of this. And but there's a fine line where you can be doing too much of it, where you end up like you know spamming people. They just they want to ignore you because they see too much of what you're what you've got coming out. Can you speak a little bit about that? Like, what's your experience with that kind of stuff, and what kinds of things have you kind of advised other musicians to do? Sure. Well, I think that. People will hear from you as much as like possible, like it, like an unlimited number of times, as long as what you have to say is relevant to them. So, yeah. like, it, it, I, I don't think people should be as concerned about the quantity as they are with the quality. Like, mm -hmm. we have to make sure 100% of what we're doing is relevant to those target audiences. Because if it is, then all of a sudden, it's not so bad. Like, if it's if you're hearing from your best friend or loved one, uh, like throughout the day, it feels good. Like you're never going to be like, look, we talk way too much or like, yeah, I hear yeah. from you too much. We got to, we got to get out of here yeah. um, because you've already built up that relationship. So if you, imagine if you had a chance to follow your absolute favorite artist in the world, you would hang on to every word that they would say if what they were saying was like, actually like, honest if it was relevant if it was building that relationship up like oh, let me tell you how i wrote this song or uh, how i got into music or or they provide some kind of insight because you you're just eating it all up yeah. now if every message they posted was like hey i have a new t-shirt out or <laughs> here's an album it, you know like if it was the same promotional stuff all the time you'd be like ah, this is this kind of sucks like i don't right. really want to engage with this so like content I think should be thought of not in terms of like how often you promote yourself, 
but how often you're building that relationship, how often you're advancing that uh, those goals that your fan might have in terms of following your page. Sure. Once once you've established that and you figured out like what it is that they want to hear, like what they want to hear, then you can start thinking about like how often. And so I think it's reasonable to like be present around the clock, like to have regular presence around them, provided it's relevant. And so that's that's how I kind of see it. Like I, I start, I think of it as less like a megaphone. Like social media isn't how often you're shouting at people, but we should instead think of it like a telephone. How often are we communicating? And that means also listening, like receiving information and responding directly to that. Yeah. So. If you think about like social media nowadays, in terms of like a, a perspective of a very old technology like the telephone, all of a sudden it's less intimidating because you're like, okay, we're, we're having a conversation, we're staying in touch on a regular basis. Every once in a while, I'll throw in something that might be promotional because they've already they're invested in that relationship at that point. Sure. But it's not always going to have to be about that. Like I can talk about other stuff that isn't just the new album or whatever new song I'm working on. But, you know, if, if they're really like into you, like, yes, do some little teasers, do some drops, show them the song. Like right. that's, that's fine. But don't like post about it 30 times a day. Well, I think you write about this too in the book is like, it sounds like what you're getting at is you're, 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 you're cultivating relationships. And that seems to be like what, uh, I think you point this out that that's kind of what you know being in the music business is about. If you're trying to get somewhere, you've got to develop relationships, and it seems like that's true on every level. Do you think so? Absolutely. I mean, if you see things as transactional only, then like nobody wants to thought be thought of as that. Like you and I don't want to be seen as like you know some like a product or right. like what like. You don't want to just think like, oh, I'm only here to give you money. That's That doesn't feel good. Right. But if it's like something like, hey, let's build this thing together. Let's create a movement. And all of a sudden, you're like, yes, like, let's do that. Like, this is really cool. And that's why I'm a big fan of like stuff that takes, you know, you might be great at social, but I'm also a big fan of taking that stuff offline and doing really creative stuff with it as well. So, um, like one of the things I used to do back in the day um, when I was in Portland is I started out uh, in, my, in my old band, The Stivs. I started like driving to every record store in town and, and putting posters up for our shows. But then I was like, you know, this takes up like all day, every week, like yeah. putting up flyers for the show. So then I just got, I was like, how can I be more effective at it? Well, I created a mailing list with mailing labels for every record store. And I figured, oh, I could just mail it to them. But then I thought, nobody wants junk mail. So I would send them posters, handbills, and then I would write, write a little hand note just saying, like, like a personal note, how much I appreciated the fact that they supported independent musicians in the area. Nice. And then every once in a while, I drop off cookies. And if I, if I saw a poster hanging up, like, hey, hey th that's my band. Thanks for opening that up and, and hanging it up. Here's a plate of cookies for your, for your staff. <laughs> nice. <laughs> and, and then I would ask our fans, like, if you see a poster hanging up in the store, tell them thank you. And, and, and so people getting thanked and getting cookies, like, hey, that's a good thing. And then every time I mailed the thing and they saw it was coming for me, they would they wouldn't just like hang it hang it up in some crappy place on the bulletin board in the back. They'd put it in the front window, 
So yeah. it's just doing stuff like that to build up that relationship. And I've done the same thing in terms of like, like not even promoting, but um, like when I was on tour, after every tour, what I do is I handwrite thank you notes and I send them to all the talent agents and the staff that we worked with for the shows, the sound guy, the, the person that booked us, the, the bartender. Like if we get names, I would specifically mention them and how nice it was to work with them. Nobody does that in the industry. Like this yeah. industry is pretty cutthroat. Uh, people just play their show. They leave. They might get pissed because they don't get paid enough. You know, they, they might take advantage of all the free drinks and that's it. Like that's not that's not any way to have a relationship. But right. if you take the time to do that, like the next time you ask to book a show, even if the turnout wasn't that great, they'll remember, hey, that's the band that was really fun to work with. And they're really nice to us. Of course, we want to work with them again. And this time, we'll get an even better local on the bill to get more people out. Right, right. Yeah, I love it. So you, you mentioned in the book that you know it's, it's important to target a, like a niche audience. Why is that so important? Because if you try and appeal to everybody, you're going to appeal to nobody. Mm-hmm. Like mar- marketers call this the smallest viable audience. Like you think of like the way I was taught is that instead of thinking about a demographic group, like if someone's like, what, what are your fans like? Don't give them a category like, oh, uh, men from age 15 to 45. Right. Because that doesn't make sense. Like, what forty-five-year-old really has stuff in common with a fifteen-year-old? <laughs> yeah. Like, even someone who's twenty-five doesn't have a lot with someone who's fifteen. Yeah. Instead, you should think of a person. So, write a biography. Like, who is the most enthusiastic fan? What are they like? What do they? How do they talk? What what spaces do they hang out in? Like, that's who you should be targeting. And then all of a sudden, you'll attract a lot of people just like them and their friends. And it kind of naturally spreads from there. Like, but if you if you try and target entire demographic groups, you're just going to get lost. You actually are, uh, call out people that you know not for not using LinkedIn as a uh, as a source. Is that you know when you wrote the book, um, was that something you were you were taking advantage of a lot and and realizing people weren't, or is it has it changed much? I mean, I realized I wasn't even. You know, I'm on there, but I wasn't really doing much with it because I wasn't I wasn't able to see where the value was until I read that chapter and was like, oh, yeah. And so I've been getting a little more involved with the groups and stuff. Um, has it changed over the past few years or do you think that that's still a valuable thing that people aren't doing enough of? Well, it's changed a little bit in that, you know, Microsoft bought out LinkedIn. So the yeah. platform itself has been evolving, especially over the last year and a half. However, the concepts still remain the same. Like you could be very influential very quickly in very specific groups just by being active. And like all it takes is a few posts a a week. And I still think, especially for like people in higher education, LinkedIn is a really underappreciated resource. So for like, for example, when I was in, in grad school, you know, people would have a page, but they wouldn't really do anything with it. And so I decided to flip it on its head. So every single class, I would connect with all of my classmates and the instructor. And then at the end, the end, after making sure that like I was very well known for being the person that always took the initiative or the lead role in a group, I would ask for recommendations yeah. or I would ask for additional connections and that sort of thing. And so it allowed me to build up my LinkedIn um, profile pretty robustly and very quickly especially uh, throughout that time. And that was the time that I was writing the book. It allowed me to 
not only get interviews and profiles in a number of media articles, but it also opened up a lot of paths for, for connections for additional business. So I've probably gotten, I want to say 30 or 40 speaking engagements just from LinkedIn connections. And I have sold a number of records. I've gotten a lot of like press just from making contacts through LinkedIn, like stuff that you can't, you can't buy your way into those situations. Yeah. It just, it's an investment of time. Um, I even got a job through LinkedIn, just not, not like applying through it, but um, it was back when I was working in higher education. I thought, how, how can I like stand out from all the other candidates? Cause I was applying for a marketing position at a college. And I thought, you know, I'm just going to join all the LinkedIn groups that are relevant to higher education and marketing. So I did that. And for about a month before my interview, I just post on a regular basis and interact with people, answer their questions and, and share articles. So, you know, very quickly, I rose to the top as the most influential person in higher education and marketing <laughs> on LinkedIn. Nice. And so, you know, when I walked into the job interview and they're like, so, you know, what makes you stand out? Why should we hire you? I, I would like, hey, I'm the number one most influential person in higher <laughs> education marketing right now. Even your boss follows me. Yeah. And I've already answered a bunch <laughs> of questions. I already know your budget. Like, I know your staff. And just from doing that homework. And they're like, oh, well, shoot. <laughs> like, who, <laughs> you know, what What do you have to say to that? Like, right. you can't. It's like, okay, that, that absolutely makes sense. Like, I've proven not only do I market like myself, but I market in your very specific area. So you could do that with pretty much any other industry. You can use it to build connections for sponsorships, for for media, for uh, collaborators on projects, music festivals. I got I got booked at a couple music festivals just from that because I got connected with a talent buyer. So it's like you never know. Yeah, there's this topic of influencers, and I mentioned this a few minutes ago, but this is a, another term that you know I really hadn't learned until the last like maybe eight months or so. Can you talk about what that what that means? You know that to people who are just like an influencer, what are, what are they talking about? And, and then how, how and why that can be important for musicians who are trying to, you know, build their name or get up, you know, get out in front of people. Sure. So the, the term as we know it now is, is pretty new. Like I would say it really kind of popped up about a year or two ago. Like people started talking about influencers on Instagram or, yeah. or Twitter or a couple other spaces. And all an influencer really is, is like a gatekeeper or a trendsetter. It's somebody who, who has influence um, over a particular audience. And oftentimes it's like a really niche, like specific audience as well. And so um, for musicians, like if you get to know who the influences, influencers are of your particular audience and you connect with them, it raises the chances that you can get profiled featured, recommended, and in other words, have access to a whole audience that you otherwise wouldn't have uh, through someone who is very influential in that community. So yeah. like we know the Kardashians are very influential in the worlds of like fashion and makeup. Like they, they each one of their posts, like I think uh, one, the, the Jenner, she, uh, she, when she makes a post, she gets paid a like 150 grand a post, maybe more. Oh um, there's, there's a number of artists who, who, who do this as well, but you know, record labels are also paying, uh, um, 
influencers to, to try and break artists as well. I just read an article about this, like 11 year old who just does funny dances. Like he does a bunch of hip hop dances and was known for doing the whip and nene at a basketball game in a viral video. And now the kid, like, cause he's literally a kid. <laughs> he just got yeah. out of elementary school. He charges $10,000 a video to do a 30 second dance what? and he gets, so he's, uh, I think he's going to break a million dollars very soon. Oh, and la- labels are desperate to get this kid because his videos are so watched. And just for that 30 seconds, he'll make up a dance to your, to your song and, and, and uh, do it on Instagram or whatever platform he's, he's choosing to do. And, and that's how he does it. So he, I mean, he's already got college paid for <laughs> just yeah. from, from that. Wow. And oftentimes the songs he, he dances to, they, they chart right away because that's how much influence he has over his community. And so, I mean, back in the day, we would just call it like the kind of like tastemakers right. like before social media existed. Like if, if you're like, if Casey Kasem talked about you on the radio, like, Hey, you're, you're probably going to chart. If you're in Rolling Stone magazine, that's, that's an influencer source. Like you're going to, you're going to get some really really good press you're going to get a lot of love from other people nowadays it can be any individual who just has control or um, sway over a particular audience sure and so the influencers are this is like a has it become a transactional thing where you know you're mostly if you if you're trying to get in front of someone you know that influential that you're you're looking to probably pay for it or or are there still cases where people are you can still try to reach out and and you know get promoted somehow without having to pay 10 grand for something yeah i mean it's a bit of both and and not everyone charges that much like some people will do a paid promotional post for like 100 bucks or 50 bucks like that's that's there it's it's probably more present now because it's so accessible it's so easy for people to do but that being said people are still people if you have relationships with them, if you become friends with somebody and just say, hey, do you mind giving my album a little shout out? Oftentimes they're going to do it. Your friends are not going to charge you a bunch of money to, to make that happen. They're just going to be like, oh, yeah, let's do an Instagram post together or let's do a selfie or send me out artwork. Like people will promote each other because they genuinely want to. Like that, that's not an issue. It's never been an issue. And we have to realize that any of our fans technically are influencers in their own way it might not be a huge platform but if you see them as like if you look at every fan as a potential conduit to access a larger community even if it's just their immediate friends and family like if you had a thousand fans all of a sudden that's a pretty significant number of people that you can reach so if you build up that relationship piece like all of a sudden it's it's much more impactful and meaningful than you otherwise thought because yeah. you're not reaching a thousand people you're potentially reaching you know a hundred thousand people yeah there's this underlying theme that I've touched on a few times uh, in previous episodes but it's the concept of consistency and um, if there's anything to be said about you know uh, making it in music whether you're trying to learn an instrument or or get a career out of it. Um, that there's just so much uh, riding on how consistent you are with the day to day. What can you, um, what, how can you comment on that? Well, I, I think consistency is oftentimes underrated, but it, it, it's so important. 
So if you think about someone like uh, Seth Godin, he's one of the most influential people in marketing alive. Like he's in the Marketing Hall of Fame. Yeah. If you Google the word Seth, he's his blog is number one. <laughs> yeah. And he did it by writing every single day. He, con- he was consistent about that. Every day he delivered a blog for seven years. For most of those years, nobody knew who he was. Like maybe a couple of key people who who's familiar with his work with an old company called Yoyodyne or when he used to market for Yahoo. But it was like little by little, like his pieces would spread. Someone would read that short blog, little thought of the day kind of thing and think, oh, this is cool. I'm going to send it to somebody. And it happened more and more frequently so that it became one of the most read blogs in the world. Like that only happened because of consistency. If he did it like three out of five weeks of the, <laughs> or, you know, half the year or something like that, it, it'd be so sporadic. People couldn't say like, oh, I can count on it by going to this page every day. Like what consistency does is it not only creates this like large archive of stuff to prove that you've been there and that yeah. you could be relied upon, that it, it also makes it so that it's discoverable and it also shows that how committed you are to that particular like cause, topic, or audience. It's saying it, it's creating something that will make people miss you if you don't show up. Yeah. And and I think ultimately that's what you want to do is to say like I I bring so much value that if I don't if I, I'm not here for a day if I'm not here for a week people wonder what happened where are you. And then, of course, you know, everything else that related to music, if you don't consistently practice your instrument, <laughs> your, <laughs> your skills are, are going to degrade. Like right. it's in a constant state of entropy. Uh, so if, if you're not working on your relationships consistently day after day, well, people will move on. The, the, their, their attachment, their commitment is going to fade as well. So it's, it's all, all over the place. Yeah. I think, you know, musicians um... – can have a tendency, a lot of us can have a tendency to, you know, get boxed into just, just playing our instrument or writing music or whatever, and not really addressing these other, other topics with their, if they're actually trying to exist as musicians and, you know, go through life as, as musicians uh, in a, some kind of career setting, you know, I think that, that idea of, you know, trying to be business minded doesn't come into play a lot of the time. Uh, and so someone might be consistent in <laughs> getting better at their, at their instrument. And I've seen some, even students come through uh, our program in recent years where they kind of expect that when they're done, that somehow things are just going to start working for them. And, you know, that's partly why I'm, I'm doing this is just to get more information out there to say, look, you know, you've got to work at it. You've got to be you know, disciplined and, and you've got to have this sense of consistency you have. So you mentioned earlier that you have a podcast too, and, um, was looking that up. You've been doing that. You've been doing that for a while, haven't you? A, a little bit under, a, uh, about a year or so. So okay. I started it last February. Um, and I, I, in fact, I was, I talk about consistency. I I've taken about a month off from it because I, I got really sick and lost my voice for oh, a little bit. Uh, yeah. So I was unable to, to show back up, Yeah. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I, I, I've done about 290 episodes now or so like wow. season one is 365 because my goal was to, um, to use this as kind of a companion to the book where 
if you didn't know what to do, you could randomly select any episode from you know, 1 to 365 representing each day of the year and learn and do something that day. So yeah. it's about like inspiration, information like on how to do something and application for, for your career. Yeah. And what's the name of the podcast? It's called Music Business Hacks. So just, just like, like the, the book. book. Okay, great. Well, I think it's, I think both are just so, you know, so valuable as resources for, uh, for any musicians and certainly the ones that I think are listening to um, the podcast here. But uh, where else can people learn about, uh, about you? Uh, you can go to my website, simontam.org. Or if people want like to check out the podcast and the book, you can go to musicbusinesshacks.com. Awesome. Well, Simon, I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. Um, I know you've got a busy schedule, and I think this has just been fantastic. Uh, great topics for us to, uh, to share with everybody. So I hope uh, more people will check out uh, your podcast and your book, because I, I think it's just perfect for um, what people need to do to get moving with stuff, with, the, you know, with getting better at business, the business of music. So um, thank you again, and uh, good luck on the rest of your tour. Thank you so much for reaching out.